Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. In today's feature report, Indiana environmental reporter Enrique Sands will be covering the research done on PFAS, the chemical that has been used to make products resistant to heat, water, grease, and stains. And now for your environmental reports. Of Indiana's original 20 million acres of forest, fewer than 2,000 acres of old-growth forest remain intact. Some types of interior forests are considered to be old growth if they contain trees that are more than 140 years old. Most of the sites that remain are now protected as nature preserves, and many have been selected as national natural landmarks. A nearby example of old-growth forest can be visited at Spring Mill State Park. Within the park are 145 acres of Donaldson's Woods, an old-growth forest. Old-growth ecosystems support diverse flora and fauna, from mosses and liverworts to large mammals and species at risk. These forests also provide habitat for many birds, mammals, and amphibians. The first thing you notice when you enter an old-growth woods is the sheer size of the trees. Giant hardwoods three and four feet across at the base soar more than 100 feet to the canopy above. The oldest trees are more than 250 years in age. Many of Indiana's old-growth oaks were producing acorns long before the American Revolution. Another old-growth forest of note is the Indiana Pioneer Mothers Memorial Forest. Formerly known as Cox Woods, the tract is one of the last old-growth forests of its size in Indiana. The site has been left virtually undisturbed since before it was purchased by Joseph Cox in 1816. The article on the old-growth forest continues. Joseph and Mary Cox came to Indiana from Tennessee in 1811 and acquired 258 acres near what was to become the town of Paoli. Cox loved trees and set aside a hillside of forest land to save for future generations. His land stayed in the family and eventually passed to another Joseph Cox, who shared his grandfather's love of the stately old trees. He resisted pressure to sell the large trees despite poverty and debts. The second Joseph Cox died in 1940. His heirs quickly sold his property, including the track of old-growth timber, to Wood Mosaic Lumber Company of Louisville, Kentucky for $23,000. When the sale was publicized in local papers, a movement was started to save the unique track from harvest. The Meridian Club of Paoli convinced Wood Mosaic to refrain from cutting the timber for 90 days and to resell the track at the purchase price. The community then began a massive fundraising effort. The Forest Service also initiated efforts to help save the old forest. The agency was able to procure half the funds needed as long as the land would be controlled by the Forest Service. 
The remaining money was quickly raised with one day of grace and the land bought back from the lumber company. Two conditions were attached to the donations received from the community. First, no trees on the 88 acres could ever be cut. Second, in tribute to the $5,900 donation from the Indiana Pioneer Mothers Club, the area would be named the Indiana Pioneer Mothers Memorial Forest, and a suitable memorial would be built. A rock wall memorial was completed in 1951, and the area was officially dedicated in 1955. Republicans have hardly been vocal supporters of renewable energy or electric vehicles, yet the U.S. South, a region where the politics lean red, is now primed to greatly benefit from the broader effort to turn America's economy green. This possibility was described by Inside Climate News. While Texas Senator Ted Cruz called it, quote, a gift to radical environmentalist, end quote, and Tennessee Representative Chuck Fleischman said it was, quote, a continuation of Democrats' radical policies, end quote, that have decimated the economy. Both of their states will likely receive billions in climate-related spending from the Inflation Reduction Act. The Democrats' $739 billion spending package and signature climate legislation, which President Joe Biden signed into law last month, dedicates roughly $370 billion to fighting climate change, largely through federal tax incentives for electric vehicles, clean electricity, and building efficiency. Yet, despite not a single GOP lawmaker voting for the legislation, some analysts now think the South could soon become America's new green hub, boosted by a fresh injection of federal dollars aimed at expanding the domestic manufacturing of batteries, solar panels, and a host of other key components for the clean energy transition. Several states in the region already lead the nation when it comes to renewable energy development and electric vehicle production. Last year, Texas came in first for new solar and wind energy installations, surpassing even California, with Oklahoma coming in third. Wind energy alone made up a whooping 41% of Oklahoma's total energy generation in 2021, according to the Department of Energy. Southeast states in particular have seen a boom in clean energy industry activity. North Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, Georgia, and Alabama are all producing or soon will be producing large quantities of electric vehicle parts, including the batteries that power them. Some experts believe that industry, which has already gained a solid footing in the region, will only grow further as federal dollars begin flowing to states and consumers. Could Indiana reap benefits from this trend? Indiana is as red as any of the southern states. This story originates from an organization WFHB is not familiar with, First Street Foundation, based in New York City. The story has not been peer-reviewed, but it was recommended by Inside Climate News, a reliable source. The study is worthy of consideration. A climate study released during one of the hottest summers on record predicts a 125-degree extreme heat belt will stretch across a quarter of the country by 2053. Within the next 30 years, 107 million people, mostly in the central U.S., are expected to experience temperatures exceeding 125 degrees, a threshold that the National Weather Service categorizes as extreme danger. 
That's 13 times more than the current population experiencing extreme heat. The hottest cities, according to the study, will be Kansas City, Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, Memphis, Tennessee, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Chicago. Quote, this is really off the charts of the scales that we've developed to measure these kinds of things, end quote, said Bradley Wilson, the Director of Research and Development at First Street Foundation, the New York-based climate research nonprofit that developed the model. Temperatures are expected to increase by 2.5 degrees over the next three decades. Warmer air retains water, creating more humid conditions and compounding heat indexes. The heat rise predicted is within the range predicted by most climate scientists. The Chicago Tribune reports that if State Representative Marcus Evans has his way, Chicago will enter the race to build the first offshore wind farm on the Great Lakes. Evans has introduced a bill that lays the groundwork for a proposed wind farm in Lake Michigan, about 10 miles from the shores of the southeast side. The bill sets up a fund that would help the state to compete for federal money, including $230 million for port infrastructure projects available from the U.S. Department of Transportation. Illinois would enter the race behind Ohio, where the Icebreaker Wind Farm in Lake Erie recently won a court battle that should allow construction of a demonstration project to proceed. And New York State, which is studying the feasibility of a Lake Erie wind farm. The bill to proceed, the Illinois Rust Belt to Green Belt Pilot Program Act, is expected to create over 1,200 jobs. Evans would like to locate the project in the waters off the southeast side, a majority black and Latino area that has suffered from high levels of industrial pollution. While Indiana generates less than 10% of its power from renewables, there is no effort to build wind farms in Lake Michigan. Whether in the form of historic droughts, blistering wildfires, record-setting hurricanes, extreme heat, or catastrophic flooding, it's clear that natural disasters in the U.S. are increasing in frequency and severity. In the face of a changing climate, we need environmental protection now more than ever. But when environmental issues are challenged, will they be protected by the nation's highest court? Unfortunately, it doesn't seem so. The assessment was performed by EcoWatch. This past June, the Supreme Court restricted the ability of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, to fight the climate crisis in its decision to strike down West Virginia versus EPA. With its conservative majority, the current Supreme Court justices have been called, quote, the most anti-environmental court in the modern era, end quote. With more environmental issues likely to come before the court soon, EcoWatch took a deeper dive into where the nine justices stand on climate issues and graded them accordingly. In assigning our eco-grades, we looked at the top 40 environmentally-related cases decided by the Supreme Court since 1992, when the longest-serving Justice Clarence Thomas began his term in order to evaluate the environmental track record of each justice. Justices Kagan and Sotomayor both received an A rating. Justice Kentanji Brown-Jackson has no record on the Supreme Court to evaluate. All the remaining justices received either a D or F rating. This is not surprising since Republicans have solely focused on profit and exploitation all this century. 
Corals have developed a sophisticated internal fan system to protect themselves from climate change, a study has revealed. Coral reefs are under threat from coral bleaching, which eventually leads to starvation. Global warming can distribute the algae on the coral, which gives it its vivid colors, leaving it white, fragile, and more likely to starve. Now scientists have revealed how a special internal cooling system is saving stony corals from environmental stress. A study led by the Alfred Wegener Institute and the Max Planck Institute for Marine Microbiology in Bremerhaven, Germany, had its findings published in the journal Current Biology on August 23rd. These sugars are produced from water and carbon dioxide through the use of photosynthesis. This process becomes problematic when temperatures are too high, which causes the algae to release dangerous substances instead of supplying the polyps with energy. The polyps then get rid of the roommates by throwing them out, which causes the reefs to lose their color and in most cases die. Zinger News obtained a statement that explains that stony corals make use of cilia, tiny hair-like projections on the surfaces of their cells that influence flow conditions and protect the creatures from dangerous concentrations of oxygen. While oxygen is vital for most animals and plants, too much of it can be harmful to corals, especially in warm water. Most coral reefs are made up of hundreds to thousands of tiny organisms known as polyps that have a symbiotic relationship with a group of algae that is provided with shelter in exchange for energy-rich sugars. To figure out why, the team studied the coexistence of the hard coral creatures with a group of algae under a magnifying glass. By following the trail of oxygen, the scientists discovered it is actively distributed to areas where it is needed by the cilia. Co-author Dr. Soeren Amerkamp added, quote, the trick is that the cilia on the surface of the coral create small vortices through coordinated beating, end quote.
And now for our Indiana Environmental Report from Enrique Sines on the research of the PFAS chemical, or PFAS chemical, that has been used to make products resistant to heat, water, grease, and stains. The Biden administration is moving forward with regulation for the most pervasive PFAS substances, but many PFAS chemicals currently being used in the U.S. will go unregulated despite having similar chemical structures. The EPA's master list of PFAS substances, a collection of all the lists of PFAS chemicals that EPA can find, including some that liberally list partially fluorinated substances, polymers, and other PFAS-related reaction products, list 12,034 existing PFAS chemicals. But even the strictest definition would include thousands of chemicals. It's a humongous group of chemicals. We have so much known about two of like over 4,000 of them, right? And it's just kind of like, oh, all right, we know two. (laughs) And from a toxicologist's point is like, we know that they're similar chemical structures, but we also know that we just can't assume they're all going to have the same sort of toxicity effects. Freeman and her colleagues at Purdue University are working to increase the amount of existing data that shows how PFAS chemicals affect humans and the environment. The researchers are studying PFAS chemicals through different disciplines, learning how the chemicals affect humans and wildlife directly, how the chemicals can spread, how to replace the chemicals, and how to destroy the chemicals. Freeman is researching the neurotoxicity of some PFAS chemicals on humans by looking at how the chemicals affect zebrafish. Zebrafish, the striped freshwater fish related to minnows, have been used in scientific research for over a century. They're particularly useful for finding how chemicals or diseases can affect humans because zebrafish have similar amounts of body parts and about 70% of the genes found in humans. The main focus of our, of our group here at Purdue that are doing the, the human health outcomes is neurotoxicology. So we're trying to look at impacts on the brain. And we know that you know, we have that blood-brain barrier that helps to block out a lot of chemicals from getting in, but the smaller chemicals actually get into the brain easier, shorter chemical structures. And so that's part of the questions that we've been asking is we're getting these replacements put in, but they're actually smaller, shorter, shorter carbon chains compared to the longer ones that we've been phasing out. And will they be able to get into the brain easier and cause you know, more neurotoxicity or different types of neurotoxicity than we see with some of the, the older generational chemicals that we had? Freeman and Associate Professor of Chemical Engineering Chongli Yuan examined the impact of low-dose PFOA and GenX exposure on neurons that control movement, behavioral processes, and other brain functions. Freeman's colleague, Associate Professor of Toxicology Jason Cannon, has researched how PFAS exposure is linked to chronic and age-related psychiatric illnesses and neurodegenerative diseases, like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in children and Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease in elderly populations. Professors Jason Hoverman and Marisol Sepulveda from Purdue's Department of Forestry and Natural Resources and Professor Linda Lee of Purdue's Department of Environmental and Ecological Engineering have worked on establishing toxicity reference values for amphibians exposed to PFAS. Hoverman is also conducting state of Michigan funded research into the ecosystem level effect of PFAS contamination on wetland food webs. Lee has studied PFAS for over 15 years and works with wastewater treatment plants around the state to decrease the amount of PFAS that exists in the plants through effluent and sludge. Other Purdue engineers are also part of the school's efforts to better understand PFAS chemicals. George Joe, Associate Professor of Civil Engineering and of Environmental and Ecological Engineering, has studied PFAS removal in drinking water and how microbial growth and point-of-use systems affects PFAS removal efficiencies. 
Carlos Martinez, Associate Professor of Material Engineering, is working on developing a PFAS-free foam formulation. Assistant Professor of Health Sciences Aaron Specht has developed non-invasive and non-destructive techniques to measure PFAS using X-ray fluorescence. University of Notre Dame engineers like Professor of Chemistry and Biochemistry Graham Peasley have found PFAS chemicals in fast food packaging, firefighter turnout gear, and cosmetics. At Indiana University, researchers like Associate Research Scientist Amina Salamova and Assistant Professor Marta Venier have studied the presence of PFAS chemicals in private wells, in breast milk, cosmetics, and in remote Arctic communities. Freeman said the work scientists are doing now to identify the threats of new and existing PFAS chemicals should shape the way Hoosiers and their legislators use and regulate them. This group of chemicals is starting to grow, and so it, but I mean, there's just so much one scientist we don't know, but then there's just, so, I mean, whether or not there's information out there in the public and uh, whether the legislators know much about it or not. And so I think that's part of the importance of the role. I think what we can do as researchers is just having discussions with with those um, that are interested in, in, or not interested, I guess, too, but just being able to to talk about what what we see. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly, and I'm Cynthia Roberts. Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for EcoReport, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Enter the world of plants and learn more than just identification of the wild, edible, medicinal, poisonous, and useful plants program on Saturday, September 10th from 1 to 3 p.m. at the RCA Community Park. Discuss local plants and how they may be used for food, medicine, or tools. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. Take the Harvest Moon Hike at Leonard Springs Nature Park on Saturday, September 10th from 8 to 10 p.m. The Harvest Moon is the full moon that coincides with the fall equinox. Learn the history and lore of the Harvest Moon as you hike through the park. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. Leaf print coloring will take place at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, September 10th from 11.30 a.m. to noon at the Lakeview Activity Center. You will join the naturalists to make your own leaf print while learning about how the trees prepare for fall. The Bloomington Community Gardening Program is offering a class on Fall is for Planting Fruit Trees on Thursday, September the 15th from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. at the Willie Streeter Community Gardens. Autumn's cooler temperatures and shorter days help trees acclimate with less stress. The class will be led by a certified arborist. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. Have some fall fungal fun at Leonard Springs Nature Park on Sunday, September 18th from 2 to 3.30 p.m. Take a hike to find wild mushrooms. Learn how to identify mushrooms, where to find them, and how to prepare them for eating. 
Dress for the weather and be prepared for moderate hiking. Register at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. EcoReport is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Juliana Daly assembled the script and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and audio edited today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.